You and your mom are hillbillies. This is a house of learned doctors. Are you worried that recent events have derailed your retirement plans? It certainly made us reassess all aspects of ours. And that's why we're proud to offer our listeners a chance to work with David McClellan, a fiduciary financial advisor from Forum Financial. David's practice specializes in financial life coaching and retirement planning. And right now, he's offering free consultations for our listeners if you mention the podcast. As part of this consultation, David can help you understand your financial freedom number and what that means to you in assessing your future financial plans. If you want to build wealth, if you want to make optimal decisions within your financial life, David is someone you need to talk to. You can reach him at 312-933-8823. Once again, that's David McClellan at 312-933-8823. He's located in Austin, Texas, but he's got a nationwide clientele. Do yourself a favor and get some great financial advice for free and see if you might want to work with Mr. McClellan. I think you'll be happy with your phone call. We are back. Everyone gets a trophy podcast. I've got another special guest I'm very excited about. He's half Armenian, but he owns 100% of my heart. And he's going to own yours too. His name is Trey Elling. He is a fantastic radio guy in Austin, Texas. He's also a friend. And uh, if you ever have a chance and you want to listen, you can go to 104.9. Uh, you can obviously listen through the internets if you're not in Austin uh, on your radio. And go and listen to Trey and Chad. Chad Hastings, our favorite two percenter Aggie. And they like to hold forth. Uh, what are you, noon to three o'clock, Trey? Is that right? Noon to three central time. So if you're listening in your neck of the woods, that would be 10 to one right now that's it yeah i um i actually do a guest spot on trey's show every week and uh every thursday mm -hmm. that's when you have the least amount of listeners and you've told me that i would do the least amount of damage <laughs> so uh i appreciate that and uh, we always have a good time i try to push the envelope and uh give the guys a hard time and they always manage to reel me in they do a good job trey i really appreciate you joining me we're just going to hit a few things random there's no big pressing thing to discuss but uh what's on your mind man what's been going on i love the curb your enthusiasm strategy there uh boy it's an interesting time to be a longhorn fan and a college football fan obviously we had the Saban and jimbo drama that really got stirred up last week at this time and uh we're in an interesting world right now because nil is clearly shaping the future of this sport but i don't think that the sky is falling quite like Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney and even Lincoln Riley would have us believe. Yeah, I think it's a brave new world. Um, I don't know. I mean, these are all coaches that you've listed who, to varying degrees, are control freaks. Most successful coaches are control freaks, particularly at the college level. Certainly Bill Belichick is a control freak, and he's had you know a little success at the NFL level. Uh, that said, some of this is about their loss of control. I do think it's legitimately a brave new world. I, I think I think things are inexorably going to change, and I don't think they're ever going to go back. No, they're not, but they maybe haven't been in that ideological place for a long time now, and perhaps it's been easier for us to put our heads in the sand, but we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry here, and it was beyond high time, as you and I have agreed on the radio show and then also off the air as well, for the players to be able to get their piece of the pie as well. And it becomes one of those things where we as humans now need to figure out the best way forward. Does that involve actual contracts between schools and players? Maybe. Does it require 
players to unionize at some point to make sure that they're not getting completely squeezed as a group? Probably so. And these are things that will hopefully be figured out in the next couple of years before that next college football playoff contract plays out. As a matter of fact, there was an ESPN story this week, Paul, that discussed uh, some of what the SEC is thinking right now with regards to the future of the conference and also what they may think that the college football playoff ends up looking like after 2025. And really, who knows? Like, we make these assumptions that all these Power Five conferences are going to want to stay together at that time. But based on how the alliance just voted with the possibility of expanding that playoff from four to 12 teams, seemingly cutting off their nose to spite their face because you are guaranteeing participation at that point, which for the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and even the ACC some years has not been a certainty. Uh, It it seems like there are some real sour grapes that are going to have to be worked through for everybody to remain on that same page and wanting to, quote-unquote, play the game together. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a natural bifurcation that's going to happen in college sports. It's going to be the haves and have-nots. And there's going to be a lot of schools, and NIL is going to bring it to a head. A lot of the schools and the few revenue sports they have, frankly, football, occasionally men's basketball. I don't think men's basketball is a moneymaker at Boise State. It's probably in the red, right? Football pays the bills. And if football is also having to pay the bills in the other sense, in terms of your boosters footing the bill for recruits and all that, I I just think that there's going to be an interesting choice that a lot of schools are going to have to make of we're going to take football really seriously and get after it, as USC is currently deciding to do, or are we not? And if the USC's of the world, are they well served being in the Pac-12 if they want to take football seriously? I mean, we might have the Pac-12 cancel next season because of seasonal allergies, right? I mean, that's it's it's a possibility, right? And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm just curious to see how it all goes. I don't have the grand theory on all this, but I do think it will. I think there will be some equilibrium when the athletes themselves whether through unionization or something like that, realize that they are actually potentially going to kill the golden goose. If they just go straight mercenary, they've got to understand that that little decal that says Texas, the little insignia on the helmet that says Alabama, all that feeling, all that sense of association with the school is how they're making that money. That's how they get all that viewership. The minute you divorce it and say, we're a semi-pro league, screw the university, we're we're not a part, I'm going to transfer three times in a four-year career, I'm telling you, college football fans are going to tune out, they're going to get dissatisfied, they're going to get disgruntled, and the minute that money dries up, their money is going to dry up. So it's going to be very difficult to get a 19-year-old athlete to understand that they should maximize their individual profits, but at the same time, if they go too far and don't consent to be curbed a little bit by maybe a union with some shared rules, I think they ultimately might kill the golden goose. The shared rules that are universally accepted is one of the big keys here. And part of that, as we've talked about on my radio show, is having that organization in place that can set forth those rules and actually has the respect of its members Because respect is what is required when you're looking to somebody with authority to dole out proper punishments, to, you know, do their job, which the NCAA has not done for a long time now. And it feels like in some ways that ADs and university presidents are about to give the NCAA one more shot. 
to try and corral this quote-unquote wild, wild west that is NIL right now. And once they prove themselves incapable of that, it's figuring out a new centralized governing body. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is, I've mentioned it before, it's all relying upon the consent of the governed. The minute you get a critical mass of real schools that drive the real dollars, the TV money, all the stuff that makes college football so valuable, right? It's live ads. That's, that is the most monetizable aspect of advertising by a significant margin, right? DVRs are a thing. Binge watching on Netflix is a thing. If you want to get live ads in front of human beings, it's sports, sports, and sports. Those are your options. So the minute the real drivers of that just tell the NCAA, nah, we're good. We'll, we'll, we'll be ruled by some alternative because you're increasingly seeing universities not be worried about being branded outlaws. It used to be this big fear in the 80s and 90s. Oh, God, we're especially Texas, right? Oh, we're an outlaw universe. Oh, we did something wrong. This reflects poorly on our hallowed institutions. You're seeing a pretty clear divorce now where even university presidents who are academics just being sort of clear eyed about what college football is. And it's something they sort of tolerate because they understand what it means for alumni giving and for general morale on campuses, right? Yeah. I know Finvis went to Emory University for a great opportunity. It is one of the top scientific research universities on the entire planet. But I do wonder if part of that was not him recognizing where the college sports and college football landscape was headed in the next couple of years. Oh, it's it's a recognition of exactly where things are. And, and Emory can't hold a candle in terms of research to Texas. Uh, Emory is you know, an elite private school. It's, it's a fine school, but it's a much different world, much level different of budgets uh, than something like the University of Texas or Cal Berkeley or Michigan, something like that. But at those schools, you have to tolerate with your, you know, holding your nose the unseemly world of college sports. Now, Cal Berkeley uh, has decided they may not tolerate it. Um, and they've they've actively sort of done some things to suppress their athletic programs. Poor Justin Wilcox is the head coach out there. He's actually a good coach. But holy shit, they, they undermine that guy at all corners. I hadn't heard that yet, but that's not surprising considering where Cal is and just the uh, mass psychosis mindset that is set in uh, throughout that state, as you're well aware at this point. I am aware. Well, I'm happy to be engaging in my own exit. Um, I don't have anything uh, like Brexit or te if I was moving to Texas, I could say Texit, but I'm going to Colorado. So I guess <laughs> coexit. Co that sounds too much like coexist. Yeah. And Pegsit is way too sexualized. So you can't go Pegsit? that. Pegsit? Oh, but accurate. Name. <laughs> right. Don't threaten me with a good time on my own podcast, Trey. Hey, so let me ask you about this, Paul, because Texas is one of a handful of universities that has a true on separation between the uh, the accounting for the athletics department and what is happening on the school side of things. Do, do you think we see more schools go this route? And if so, does it play into your fear that there is too much of a separation between the athletics and then the scholarly side of things? Right. So what, what Trey's talking about is the fact that People have an impression often that public taxpayer money pays for our football program or basketball or whatever. Uh, it does not. It's it pays, you know, basically men, you know, football and men's basketball to a lesser degree, much lesser degree, pay the bills for all sports at Texas. And they pay for their own facilities. They pay for all that stuff. Uh, 
you know, the University of, University of Texas isn't paying for that stuff, the academic side. A lot of schools, that's not the case, or it's not as easily partitioned. I think that is the future. I mean, so if, I don't know if you're familiar with the Stanford model, but they have a lot of individual sports that there's narrow participation. And this is why Stanford always does so well in Director's Cup stuff, right? They'll do men's water polo. The university is not paying for that, and even football is not paying for it. What they get is a handful of rich venture capital guys who played water polo at Stanford, and they single-handedly fund men's water polo at Stanford. And that's how they do it. And they say these guys are responsible for it. So in a weird way, it's, it's a, uh, almost a beneficiary form of NIL on the donor side, right? Um, Texas has that with swimming. I mean, I, I don't have a deep understanding of this, and I should, because one of my sponsors is a former UT swimmer, uh, national champion, awesome financial advisor, David McClellan, shout out to uh, that man. Uh, he could probably explain it better to me, and he's probably going to do it offline. Uh, but my understanding is they have a similar sort of be benefactor setup. Mm. Um, it might be a broader pool. It's not like three alums. that, But Joe Jamail, obviously. Uh, played a big role, right, in that in creating the aquatic center and all that stuff. Um, I'm going to quickly get out of my depth. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Trey, uh, trying to make Trey smile is one of my goals. And the only way I could do it is really corny humor. Uh, well, but... it's, it's hard to make a robot smile, Paul. But now that Italian crafted swimming pool that the swim team just put in a couple years ago is making a whole lot more sense. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, hey, speaking of are are you concerned about monkeypox at all? No. Do you so you know that it spreads predominantly at, at gay raves in Europe? Yes. And so I'm gonna ask the question again. Are you concerned about monkeypox? Look. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my radio show, so I'm uh, a little hesitant to go places here, but I can assure you not that there's anything wrong with this. But all I right, good. Good disclaimer, Trey. Minimum amount of sex with other men uh, over the last 44 plus years now. Okay, good. Allow so the minimum amount allowable, which is zero. Well, that's not the minimum amount allowable. Yeah, the minimum amount that exists is zero. Unless oh, you okay. Well, that is the, the minimum that, amount, technically. Unless there's right. a way that you can go into the negative. How could you go to go the negative? negative there? How could we do that? Some listeners write in. Let us know how we could go into the negative on that. Um, we're not creative enough to come up with it. Trey, Google that. See if there's some way. <laughs> I can't wait for my wife to uh, check my Google results a little bit later where I'm talking about how to go negative with other men sexually. Incognito is your friend, buddy. <laughs> got to use that incognito. For, that's a pro tip. That's right. What what are the uh, what are the guys who have uh, who have been completely mutilated and no no longer have use of it? There was a character in Game of Thrones that was this. I'm forgetting the term though. Oh, a uh, uh, eunuch. Eunuch, yes. Yeah. Does eunuch sex count as going negative? Oh, would you just sort of bump? Yeah, I I think like Kendall yeah. So eunuchs have an interesting history, right? In 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 hist uh, of just in courts. So eunuchs were typically used as guards in harems. Mm. Right. Uh, and in fact, there was an elite group of um, talking about your neighbors of your heritage, your Armenian heritage, Turkey. Right. The, uh, the height of the Ottoman Empire, the most feared shock troops in Europe. And then later they became sort of almost a, Praetor a Praetorian guard. 
administrative state were the Janissaries. And the Janissaries were eunuchs. And they were actually blonde-haired, blue-eyed Europeans that the Turks who had conquered Eastern Europe would go into towns and, and, and wage a levy on young males who are healthy. They would take them, they would impress them, put them in the military service, they'd castrate them after they'd physically developed, right, and gone through puberty and all that. And these were the Janissaries. Now, the Janissaries sort of morphed into like, they actually had a, a revolt. They overthrew the Ottoman Empire and put themselves in charge, and they became this like administrative class. They were literally an empire run by eunuchs. Most people don't know that. So two things based on that. Now I'm starting to understand why it's so silky smooth down there. And then secondly, I feel like the Turks really missed an opportunity waiting till after puberty to castrate, because if you do it before puberty, you keep those high-pitched male voices that make for really good operatic singing. Castrato. Exactly. I mean, you have and, class falsettos at this point, and you have people guarding your harems who uh, are obviously not going to be trying to get any action on the side. And think how they could have dominated Olympic sports. If Assuming that those rules existed hundreds of years ago, then you're absolutely right about when that. When did the—so obviously the Greek Olympiad existed in ancient Greece, right? Mm -hmm. it, it died out with the Greek city-states— it was revived in modern times, right? In the late 1800s or early 1900s, if I'm remembering correctly. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. There was never an interim period between that where anyone tried to do any sort of international competition. I don't know. I don't know either. I kind of want to know that. I'm surprised that you don't know that already, considering your love for history and your curiosity with things. I need to figure that out. Uh, all right, listeners, this is your mission. If you're aware of anything like the Olympiad that uh, was comparable, you know, maybe the Mongols had some stuff like that because they were big on competitions of like riding and shooting. And um, they played those games where you would basically play croquet with an enemy's head. Right. Yeah. Yeah, take, I bet, uh, I the bet they took people across the Mongol Empire, all the different horse-step barbarians. I bet they competed. You may be right about that. Buzkashi is another one of those games that uh, has a sort of morbid description. Now, it's not human heads necessarily, but rival tribes in the Middle East, specifically like pa Pakistan and Afghanistan, play what is essentially polo but with a goat carcass. Yeah, yeah. Whoever ends up winning the match gets to take the goat carcass back to the village and just have a feast for the night, which is a hell of a lot better than some cheap plastic trophy that you're going to be getting for becoming champs, right? That, I'm going to rename this podcast. <laughs> just what? make sure you spell it Buzkashi and not Bukaki. Okay? Yeah, I was going to say that is a little problem. Um, we might get back into the monkeypox thing there. But D did you know, Paul, because in modern times, when a guy has just played a game and takes his jersey off and gives his jersey to a kid or something who's sitting courtside, and does that kid really need that jersey? His parents are obviously super loaded where he's already courtside to begin with. But anyhow, uh, that's a, a valued prize, a game-worn jersey. Back in the uh, ancient Roman and Greek times, they valued not the jerseys necessarily, but the sweat, sweat. of the competitors, of the gladiators. Yeah. They would literally scrape it off of the individuals at the end of competition, bottle it, and sell it for all sorts of different reasons. It even had homeopathic uh, or supposed homeopathic uh, treatment 
sex uh, availability. Like, is supposed to like deal with like a, it's supposed to help you with your sex life or erectile dysfunction, right? That and I think it was supposed to help heal gonorrhea too and other yeah. STDs. Can you imagine trying to? It doesn't work. The sweat. <laughs> Let me just tell you. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna take your word for it. Oh man, you could sweat and sweat and sweat. And it doesn't go away. <laughs> just does not go away. You need Western science, Trey. Oh man. See, see, yeah, this actually, I love the, doing shows with you because there's no way I can keep up at times. I try and take it to weird places, and then you just you outdo me. Very well, I try to trump your weirdness, and because <laughs> you're constrained by Austin Radio, and you got to kind of keep it between the lines. And you're like, ah. Oh. What, what's great is Chad always breaks before you because Chad doesn't like like uh, like you know a little bit of tension, or he doesn't like when things get too far off, like down the fairway. And he always will be like, he'll steer it back more b before you do. And you're always amused to like sitting there like, ah, I, I would have kept going. Well, especially now that he's in the boss's role. But we also have to remember, this is a guy, by the way, I love Chad. I've worked with him forever. Yeah, yeah this isn't criticism of Chad. Chad's this is something that I will say to his face when we're doing the radio show. But Chad is the guy who has literally never pissed or shit in front of his wife in terms of like there being a door open or cracked or a jar now the number two thing is understandable because i haven't uh voluntarily done that with my wife necessarily but to never have gone pee real quick with the door slightly cracked and your wife in the next room i mean that guy takes it to a different level with uh him trying to avoid the discomfort i, I mean i live in california most guys i know have peed on their wife well not just that but you're used to just seeing human beings just dropping deuces all over the street <laughs> yeah, I'm Days. I'm I'm a nerd to the sight of seeing humans poop and pee in public. Uh, yeah, I, I no joke. I I saw it a couple of days ago. It's uh, it is a feature of our of my great city. Um, well, a little bit of that was starting to happen in Austin before the voters, thank God, were given the option to rescind the public camping policy that had been put into effect. I mean, there were pictures and videos of. Dudes just below the uh, the high parts of uh, Ben White Boulevard just doing their business into a bucket. And it's like, all right, this is the new normal, I guess. Oh, well, the bucket, that's, ni that's nice. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, I mean that's, that's, like, that's kind of like being a gentleman. So, okay, well, I'm not as mad. Bucket, that's thoughtful. We don't, ha we don't do buckets here, I can assure you. It'd be like one of the hobos in San Francisco going behind the uh, the boulder on the sidewalk and just uh, being on the opposite side of the public street, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's more courteous, but uh, yeah, I um I won't miss that aspect of San Francisco. I can tell you that much. All right, I want to talk about nil tangentially. We're actually directly related to it. Saban, Jimbo, you guys had to have loved that. That was like a week of of content for your show in the doldrums of late May, early June, where there's nothing going on, right? Jimbo won't shut up. No. When he you're, like, first of all, his press conference, I did an entire podcast dedicated to it, um, where I just played the clips and then commented on it. Uh, I did a terrible job with the audio, but nonetheless, some most people were able to get the audio, and it was a lot of fun. Jimbo was insane. If you break down that press conference, it was nuts. And... He won't shut up about it. He, he's like saying, I, you know, I, I'm looking at this class and only one guy has an NIL deal and 11 of them don't. And, you know, he's breaking down different units. Like, dude, shut up. Does A&M not have attorneys? Right. What, like, shut up. As Chad has pointed out, Jimbo is the guy that they hired to be brash, 
and to be arrogant and not being not being afraid to talk about things, right? But lifetime contract will give you a little that'll embolden you a little bit, right? Right. But I've got a lifetime contract in this podcast. That's why I'm such an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> well, that makes a whole lot of sense now. Yeah. Uh, but for Jimbo, there can be a certain tact that comes into play in a manner we'll, we're saying less is more because you come out looking better. If he yes. had just let Nick Saban dangle in the wind and either put out some sort of official PR sheet, and you talked about this on our show last week, you broke it down perfectly, and actually just shut the fuck up for once and yep. just let a PR sheet or just read words off of a paper and say this is all that it is and actually take the high road. Uh, it wouldn't have turned into another big joke on the A&M side of things again. Now, did Nick Saban ultimately try and walk things back and try and call Jimbo and Deion Sanders? Yeah, he did. And do you have to consider that what he said was done in front of a bunch of Alabama boosters, so it wasn't technically on the record, although did he mean to say what he did because he knew it would get out? That, that might be true as well. But Jimbo because he is incapable of shutting the fuck up, just continues to bury himself with details in a narrative that is clearly not true. So all you're doing at that point, Paul, and this is not just the case for official journalists, there are so many internet sleuths out there as well, is you are asking people to go fact check all yes, these outlandish things them. that you are swearing up and down to the truth when we all know that it's not true, Jimbo. We're not faulting you for that. We understand this has been going on for a long time. Kudos to you for doing it the best on that first recruiting cycle after NIL went into effect. You got the number one recruiting class. Stop fucking talking, dummy. You're cursing a lot, Trey. I finally get to do so. I do it on my podcast from time to time, but it's not always a good idea when you're talking to some zoologist from England <laughs> uh, to drop F-bombs left and right. Oh but my. I I'm talking about Jimbo. I wanted to on the show earlier this week. Like, I should just be amused by this, but I'm annoyed that the guy is so incapable of shutting up that he can't just let a situation be and take the high road for once. Yeah, I think he's he protests too, too much. But this is a PG-13 show, sir. We have children listening, so let's let's respect let's respect our clean, non-explicit lyric. Uh, I'm gonna have to go in and edit all this. I'm gonna well, I'm gonna substitute the word fudge. I'll keep it, uh, or you could go fork like the good place does, or you fork. can go fork, <laughs> or you can go frick. I can just do I can just do a bunch of different versions of uh, frick and frickin' once we're done with the record with the record. So you can actually get my mouth saying it as well. I'll just make sure to stay in place for the rest of this podcast. I'm gonna have you say fracking to make a statement about climate change. Frack, there uh, you go. Fracking. All right. So that's a good take. I get it. We've covered uh, Jimbo. We've covered gladiators. We've covered monkeypox. Uh, we've covered nil. These are the main pressing. That's the zeitgeist right now. That's like kind of what's happening, right? People are people are real into gladiators right now, Trey. But I want to know your history. I don't actually. You're a guy that I I know. I'm friendly with. Uh, we interact. But I don't know your history. Like I don't know what kind of guy you were in high school. I don't know anything about any of that kind of stuff. I don't. I don't know how you got into radio. I know you were a producer. And then you ended up in front of the mic. Talk to me about the journey of Trey Elling from young Austinite, uh, Westlake punk to, uh, you know, award-winning, title-winning, 
dominant talk show at the drive time in the afternoon. I thought you were going to say beach volleyball player. All right. So you, you are a good beach volleyball player. So I was born in Tyler, Texas, January 12th, 1978. And what was at the time the worst snowstorm in East Texas history? So an inch and a half. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that was uh, that record was shattered just a couple years ago with ice apocalypse. Or was it last year? Boy, time has flown. Uh, yep. It was last year that the ice ice snow apocalypse happened. Um we went on to move to Longview for a couple of years in San Antonio, ultimately settling in the DFW area in a city called Carrollton, which is I would easily explain to people back in the 1990s was directly west of where Plano was, because this was a time where Plano was going through the heroin epidemic that MTV had chronicled. And so everybody knew where Plano was in the DFW area. We were... Plano's uh, poor neighbor, I guess, their honky neighbor. Well, I went to uh, Newman Smith High School, and I was the kid in high school, even before having my driver's license, who was always listening to sports radio over the music stations. I would listen to the national shows and occasionally call in, and once the ticket came to be in Dallas, which I want to say was around 93 or 94, anyhow, that's the time that I heard about it, that's what I listened to day and night. And eventually when I got a car, radio is always on 1310 the ticket. And it's just something because my earliest memories in life all have to do with sports, playing sports, flipping through Dave Campbell's Texas football magazine is like a five or six year old. I remember the Dallas Morning News starting to update baseball stats on a daily basis, wow. game by game. Like USA Today used to be the only newspaper that would do. That was a great day in my sports-loving life. And I knew that sports radio was something that I wanted to get into. And uh, sure enough, at the age of 21, I did on the promotion side of things. After starting to attend the University of Texas, I got automatic admissions back when audio automatic admissions were a thing because my you could, you could SAT your way in. That's right. I got a that's, good SAT. That's what I did. I got a good SAT score and I was in the top quarter of my class. So I got in before my senior year. Oh, senior. Thank goodness the senior year didn't count because the senior year turned into uh, quite a mess at Newman Smith High School. Although I did get to get to watch Glendon Alexander become the uh, all time leading basketball score in uh, what was 5A history at the time. He went on to Arkansas and Oklahoma State and then a bunch of messed up shit after that. But uh, so I ended up at UT for a semester and I just didn't know anybody and made no efforts to meet anybody and uh, eventually transferred to Texas Tech after that first semester where all of my best friends were. And most of them ended up drinking too much and failing out in the uh, year and a half that I remained in Lubbock. So at that point, uh, my grades weren't great at UT. They weren't terrible, but, uh, at Texas tech, I did really well majoring in journalism, or maybe it was broadcast journalism. I don't remember at this point, I decided to make the move back to UT and, uh, ended up going to school there, ended up, uh, meeting a group of guys that I was very close with that we went, went out entirely too much school hit the back burner. I'm probably still 20 hours shy of a degree at UT, but uh, the radio thing really started to take off on the promotion side and then just kind of being the uh, the radio station version of a gym rat, just always being there, looking to learn, uh, hungry for more knowledge. And that's where I first met Kevin Dunn and started to get to work with him and some other people that I'm still working with to, to this day. As a matter of fact, my first ever shift 
on the air was as a producer for Bucky and Aaron when they were hosting the one to three show on the zone. And I was living in these apartments off of Palmer and Mopac at the time. Waters Park are the apartments. Great swimming pool. We did so many uh, wrestling moves into that swimming pool, my drunk buddies and me. But anyhow, my first day as uh, a member of the air staff, I was driving down Mopac and I realized that my car was past E. Uh, the, uh, the gasometer was past E. And so I was trying to make it to the gas station that is at, I believe, Duval and Mopac. And I fell about a half mile short, Paul. Now, I was still <laughs> early enough that I could make it to my shift, but it did require me to jog down the, uh, the shoulder of Mopac and to this gas station and then jog with the gas tank back to my car, nice. which I did. Got it there got it to the gas station, filled up, and actually made it to the radio station on on time. At, at the time, our studios were off of uh, like 8th and North Lamar, kind of where the uh, the book people is now. Well, I get there, and as I'm walking in, I realize it's probably not a good idea to run with a gas tank because even though it is oh, no. sealed, gasoline had gotten all over my lower legs and shoes like you could have lit a match and it would have set me on fire probably well this was also the time that the zone studios were uh the the production happening for the zone studios like who was running the board it was in the same room as the hosts so i walk in i apologize to those guys immediately i'm like look I'm sorry. I know this is a couple minutes before the show. I made it here. It's going to smell like gasoline for the next couple of hours. And those guys were definitely gasoline high doing the show that day, which uh, wasn't that big of a deal at the time for Bucky, who was still drinking then. It had probably rolled in like five minutes earlier from the Yellow Rose or Shoal Creek Saloon. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was an interesting initiation. And fortunately, things have been better than worse for the most part in this business after that. I worked for The Zone doing everything imaginable for I think about seven or eight years in that time, getting one raise, going from $7 an hour to $7.50 an hour. Yes, radio production is a glamorous job. Yes. uh, Eventually, I got to start producing this uh, small nationally syndicated show where the guy broadcast out of his house uh, near Westlake or in Westlake, I guess. And that turned into an opportunity in Oregon where I did a bunch of production work for, uh, a, um, a national syndicator of radio shows, I guess that tended to a Chicago opportunity that, uh, quickly fell by the wayside. I ended up minding the gap by working ironically enough at a whole foods in Chicago for a year and a half, starting out as a bagger. And let me tell you that it also involves at times, Uh, going and getting the shopping carts in the parking lot, which there's nothing that I've been through as humbling in my life as gathering shopping carts in the dead of the Chicago winter in the middle of the snowstorm, saying to myself, at some point, this is all going to be worth it because I figured out how to make this happen. And I love Chicago that much to where I was able to, to try and figure it out in that regard. Well, eventually I realized that customer service was not for me. I know you're shocked. This robot <laughs> face had a hard time with customer service, especially when I sh- transitioned into the cheese and wine department and as ha- having to deal with that version of clientele. Nice. So um, as I'm trying to figure out what to do. Whoa, whoa, whoa. you're yeah. a food snob. Don't pretend yeah. that that was a struggle or, oh, or did you, or did your snobbery make that difficult for you? 
Oh, it was much better than bagging groceries. Don't get me wrong. Okay. I actually do love bagging groceries. I think it is the adult version of Tetris. That and moving allow me to to really- There's an art my, to it. Oh, no question. I, I don't like, I'm so OCD about it now, Paul. I don't like other people bagging my groceries because I'll see them put, like they won't put sturdy items on bottom, which is how yes. you're supposed to do it so that the bag remains upright. They'll just like be throwing random vegetables. Oh, this cauliflower head can go on the very bottom. Red. Stack of milk on top. Yeah, exactly. Eggs. Like, what the hell are you doing? Can you pay any attention here? But anyhow, um, so uh, that was uh, that was fun in one sense, and I'm glad I had that experience. But it eventually turned into something where I started to look for opportunities. Started to perform stand-up in Chicago just to try and get the entertainment itch scratched just a little bit. I signed up for uh, creative writing classes at, at uh, Second City, which is obviously a reputable place in Chicago. And then a uh, paid internship opportunity popped up with WGN Radio. And so I submitted my information. My credentials probably blew just about anybody else out of the water. And I ended up getting to intern for a sports show followed by this interview intensive show that was kind of like Charlie Rose, but for the radio, as I like mm. to describe it to people with this guy who had been doing it for literally like 45 years at the time. Well, I was so good at that, that they eventually, uh, they eventually asked me to come on board full time as the producer for both of those shows. And so that got me back into radio, and it's remained in my blood ever since then. Um, unfortunately, along the way, or I say unfortunately, I mean, these things just happen. But uh, at one point, WGN tried to start a sports station. Am I talking too much, by the way? I have, I have rambled on. No, 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 this is the origin story. I've got okay. a couple of questions, but I was going to let okay. you finish. You, you let me know when you want me, when you want me to stop. But uh, so uh, WGN started a sports station. And they sold those of us who ended up coming over to the sports station, many of whom were employed by the radio side of things and completely content on the radio side with this 18-month and five-year plan. Well, I won't say I was skeptical, but I, I was definitely taking it with a grain of salt while also understanding, like, they are asking something of me now. They're offering a little bit more money as well and some more responsibility. So, yeah, I'll, I'll roll the dice here. I'll do this. And this was uh, after my wife and I had started dating and I think we were maybe close. Yeah, we were actually close to getting married at this time. No, we had just we had gotten married and we were about to go on our honeymoon because uh, that happened. And then I found out that she was pregnant shortly after that. And we went on a delayed honeymoon to some place that was all inclusive in the Caribbean where she, she couldn't. And I didn't see the, the able who was who was drunk all the time as his pregnant wife was having to uh, babysit her. But anyhow, so I, I take the sports opportunity. I'm not even kidding you. Nine months later, we find out that the station is folding, not from management, but from a local like media news report that said, oh my gosh, 88, 89.8, the game or whatever the, the frequency was at the time, the game is about to go off the air. Well, this hit us while our midday show was on the air. I was, I was producing and helping out on air with the night show at the time. The midday show finds out in the middle of their show, one of the guys is the program director of the station. He knew it, but couldn't say anything to anybody. The other guy who was blindsided by it all reacted on the air. It turned into a viral moment. Ben Fenfer is his name. Hilarious guy. Really good at his job. Too. I don't think he's on radio anymore. Uh, smart of him. But uh, so he gives his natural reaction on the air. He's ripping into management. Like nobody blamed him for that. And management was pissed. But at the same time, it's like, hey, you jokers allowed this to get out. 
in the media before having the guts to tell us yourself. Like, give me, like, get out of here with that bullshit. So, um, the the thing about the, the interesting thing about that for me was, as you may or may not be well aware, uh, when I left Clear Channel, which was uh, the station that the Zone was on, I left in fashion. I had written and sent out an email that was a uh, bridge burning email. And then I actually read that email on the air for Bucky and Aaron. And I like, it was one of those things where I saw management running around the windows outside of the control room and studio trying to figure out what to do. But clearly they had been trained to not try and stop uh, an insubordinate employee. So I got, I got through the spiel. I got to thank uh, one person, uh, the mom from Cosby show. Alicia Rashad, she was my first love. <laughs> and then uh, I, I uh, got escorted off the premises, but I left on my own accord. Like I, w- I would have stayed there and continued producing that show, but I was like, all right, I've 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 said my piece here. There's nothing more that's going to happen. There's somebody who can step in and produce for Bucky and Aaron. So anyhow, uh, the difference this time around is that we all got to say our goodbyes because they kept the station on the air for like a month and a half. And so we had the option of cashing out then, taking whatever vacation time was left, or continuing to work to the end of the year. So we got to do that, and so I got to say goodbye in a slightly different manner, but still in a way that I think left a positive mark, as did uh, some of the other guys who worked at that place. So at that time, the timing worked out so well, and that's always been the case for me in radio. But the timing worked out also for my wife, who had just had our first kid, who who was also let go under very shady circumstances from the uh, from the nursing job that she was working at the time. And so we were at a point where we had just had a kid. We were living in Chicago proper, and we're looking around, and we're like, we love this city as free adults, not even as single adults, although Chicago was a fun single city at the time. As married adults, the city's okay, and it's tolerable right now with the baby, but it feels like this place has the potential to go sideways pretty quickly. So I'm like, what do you think about moving someplace else? And she said, yeah, I'd be fine with that. My only stipulation is that we move someplace where we know people because it does take a village to raise children. And so we want to be able to lean on at least a few folks with who can. And I said, I completely agree with that. We've been to Austin a bunch of times at this point. I've taken you back home. And even though I grew up in Dallas, home is Austin. It, it has been gosh, probably since I left the first time. So I'm like, what do you think about Austin? And she was cool with it. So we came down here, looked around, thought about it, uh, found a place that we could rent for a little bit until we decided if we wanted to be here long-term. I started to uh, to make some phone calls with people who are still on radio here. And um, and uh, there was uh, there was some receptiveness with regards to uh, to bringing me back at the new version of the radio station that everybody at the zone uh, used to be at. And that would be the horn. And so my wife being not just a, uh, a registered nurse, but a family nurse practitioner and somebody who is uh, currently working on her PhD. She's way smarter than I am, Paul. Uh, she had an easy time getting a job. That wasn't a problem at all. So it was more about me figuring out what I wanted to do. And I knew that that leaving the business altogether would be a possibility, but thankfully things worked out and I started producing for the horn and that eventually evolved into hosting a show with the horn while also producing for Chad and Kevin in the afternoons. I uh, hosted with Brad Kellner, who has moved on to greater things. And now this is my second hosting gig where my name is on the show with Shirts and Skins with Chad and Trey. So that's the uh, far from truncated version of uh, my radio life and just a little sprinkles of my uh, non-radio life, too. I love it. Yeah, thanks. There's the Trey Elling origin story. I asked for it. I got it. So 
couple of comments and a question. Okay. The station is located in Westlake. Yes. Somehow I have it in my head because the station is in Westlake. You live in Westlake. You live in Cedar Park. Why did I don't know why I made that association. Don't you live in Cedar Park? I do. Yeah. I, I said, yeah, Westlake Punk or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The station I, is in Westlake. So somehow I'd, I it's like when you're a kid and you think the teachers sleep at the school like it. You know, like if you ever saw your teacher out at the grocery store, you'd be all freaked out. Like, do they they leave the school? Like, what's she doing here? Right. Yeah. I, I, I think of you as just staying at the radio station. I don't think of you as going home to your house in Cedar Park after work. Well, sadly, they have uh, asked producers to stay overnight at times, but that's <laughs> yeah, under, probably so uh, under emergency circumstances. Like when, say, Kevin turns off a radio station. <laughs> exactly. Something <laughs> like that. And there are times in my career where I've had to, to be the person to bite that bullet as well. But no, thankfully, we live in Cedar Park right now. I love Cedar Park. Uh, it's it's getting really crowded really quickly, but we also kind of understood what we we're getting ourselves into. We found a great deal on a house. Uh, gosh, I guess it would be six years ago now. And much like a lot of other uh, homes in this area and then across the country, the the value has skyrocketed. So we love the school district that we're in. We've talked about moving, but it's like, what do we want to move further away from the city? The, one of the big benefits for us in Cedar Park, Paul, is that we're really close to the 183 toll road. So getting into the city, assuming you're not doing so during the highest traffic hours, which I'm lucky to get to avoid for the most part, it's really not that bad. It's not like living like deep into Cedar Park or Leander or someplace else. Because even though I like being removed from... Travis County and the politics yeah. of Travis County. Um, it is nice to be able to uh, indulge in the great things that come with a city like Austin, you know? Yeah, you don't want to live in Gerald, right? It's a, it's an yeah. appropriate suburb uh, delineation and distance. You know, you mentioned buying the house six years ago. You know the best time to buy a house? Uh, after talking to the Wadlington and Winslow mortgage team? <laughs> That's right. After you talk to our friend Gabe Winslow, the best time to buy a house was yesterday. The next best time to buy a house is today. And the reason is if you're in it for the long haul, it's not just an investment. It's actually a place you're going to live, but it also can potentially be an investment, particularly a very lucrative one. If you bought in Austin, say six years ago, uh, you want to call Gabe, you want to work with the best. You can reach Gabe at 832-557-1095. Look, right now, interest rates are up. Uh, actually, we've had a pretty favorable little month. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. The rates have actually gone down a little bit. We've got, uh, for the first time, they've gotten some breathing space. So look, if you have to move, you need to be in the market. You're going to buy a house. Eventually, these rates will go back down again at some point. You refi. But don't sit here and try to play the waiting game. And that's why I was mentioning the best time to buy a house was yesterday. The next best time is today. The guy to help you in that journey, Gabe Winslow. Call him at 832-557-1095. Or you can write them at Mortgages by Gabe. You know, Trey, some people are phone shy. They don't like to pick up the phone. They're also worried that Gabe's going to harass them and call them. That's not what's going to happen. He's going to try to put you in a great deal. He's awesome at what he does. He's very ethical. And more importantly, um, I have to go back to something you said in your origin story. Real quick before, before you sure. say that, Paul because I've had the pleasure to get to know Gabe just a little bit. And much like I love talking to you because you enlighten me on so different, so many different things, like Unix, for instance, the history of Unix. Well, with Gabe, I was under the false impression 
when talking with him about mortgage interest rates that it was directly tied uh, to the general interest rate that the Fed sets. And yep. so uh, we've obviously seen a rise in that interest rate this year as the, as the Fed tries to get inflation under control. And we just got the news earlier this week that, and this is something that was kind of known as well, that they plan on going up another uh, 50 points in June and July. Those two things are not directly tied. The mortgage interest rate and the uh, the general interest rate uh, do not always go hand in hand, as you talking about the interest rate going down just a little bit at test. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought that up as a common misconception. It's one I held until I talked to Gabe and he sort of wised me up on that. But yeah, those things at best are loosely correlated and sometimes they work in inverse. So it's actually pretty interesting when you look at the the MBS and all that stuff and and basis points. Yeah, the Fed, I think, is going to do 250 basis point hikes in the next uh, couple of months. Um, they're trying to play catch up for something they should have corrected a while back, but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I love it, I love I love how the uh, the statement was they're going to go up 50 basis points over the next two months and then they're going to start looking at the data a little bit more. Oh, good. Good What's to know. You guys been doing this entire time, just ignoring <laughs> the data. You OK, anyhow, I'm not going to go the Jimbo route with the Fed. That's right. Don't don't uh, be able to let it go. You yeah. never know. Uh, hopefully those guys will get it together. But hey, folks, that is the end of part one with Trey Elling. Join us for part two. It gets even more interesting, gets even more weird. And uh, we talk about all sorts of stuff. So you guys stay tuned. Part two will be coming soon. Do you need a realtor in Central Texas? Of course you do. We all need a realtor in Central Texas. Even those of us who live in Dallas or Houston or San Francisco or Denver, Colorado, you need to go to Central Texas anyway. And the reason is Laura Baker is a fantastic realtor. She's great at what she does. She's a member of the elite Andy Allen team for Keller Williams. You can reach her at 512-784-0505. Talk with Laura if you're thinking about putting your house on the market. This is a great time to get market comps. Uh, if you're looking to buy in the market, you need all the help you can get. Call Laura and it's 512-784-0505.